Hi, I'm Melody Edwards, host of the Modern West podcast. Reservations have been some of the hardest hit communities in the COVID-19 pandemic. It's an all too familiar story, the arrival of a terrible illness that harms elders while the federal government does little to stop it. So you've got a malnourished group of people who are having to exert themselves heavily on this on this march west that just makes you wide open to disease. This season, we learn how tribes are still fighting for sovereignty over their community's health. Listen at the modernwest.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping this week on Friday, October 1st at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Alice Miranda Olstein of Politico. Good morning. Kimberly Leonard of Insider. Hi, everyone. And Tammy Luby of CNN. Hello. Later in this episode, we'll play my interview with Anna Flagg of The Marshall Project. Anna is a data journalist who's done some fascinating work on how a century-old report that reshaped medical education also played a role in racial health inequities that still plague us today. But first, this week's news, and there is lots of it breaking. Um, Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh has just announced that he tested positive for COVID, although he's fully vaccinated. So one presumes he will have a only mild course of illness. We're hearing about a possible new pill to treat COVID this morning. But let's start with the big reconciliation bill on Capitol Hill, which was supposed to be voted on and not yet. (laughs) Alice, what's the latest? Well, it's a little bit up in the air at this point. Uh, Hopefully things won't shake out as we tape this, although you never know. Uh, But basically... I heard they're having a caucus meeting in about a half an hour. Absolutely. But even then, if any sort of agreement is made, it will be vague bullet points and the details will be hashed out later. So what we can definitely say right now is progressives have successfully used their leverage by threatening to block the bipartisan infrastructure bill because they're afraid that Congress will just pass that and then abandon the reconciliation bill, which includes all of the health care programs that they want to see, expansions of Medicaid, Medicare, Obamacare, home care, all kinds of things. And so in order to make sure that gets anywhere. They are sort of holding the other bill hostage and saying, you know, we need both. They are literally holding the other bill hostage. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And then the other major development this week was that, you know, this secret memo from uh, Senator Joe Manchin uh, came out that was months old, demanding that the bill be no bigger than $1.5 trillion, which is a lot smaller than the $3.5 trillion that the House had already, you know, drafted and, and marked up and hammered out all the details. And even the $3.5 trillion version didn't include all of the healthcare funding they wanted for all of the different programs. And so chopping it down, even if they come to somewhere in the middle, which is what most people anticipate, you know, even if it's around 2 or 2.5, they still have to make a lot of cuts. And so it's going to be a bit ugly going forward, fighting over what programs get those dollars. There's already been a lot of arguments about politically what makes the most sense, policy-wise what makes the most sense, 
what programs would be most vulnerable to later being defunded by a potential Republican majority, what programs could Democrats protect for the future. So all of this is TBD. So if they scale it back, Alice, you had a good story earlier this week about they're already sort of looking at ways to scale it back. I mean, at some point, it's sort of pitting new Medicare benefits against new Medicaid benefits, right? Right. Many lawmakers believe that you know, the Medicare benefits are more politically safe because they think there's no way Republicans would take dental vision hearing benefits away from tens of millions of seniors and be able to survive at the ballot box, whereas Republicans have already been very much on the record opposing the Medicaid expansion for low-income people in these remaining states. And so there's that calculus there. There's the calculus of giving Democrats from those uh, 12 holdout states something to campaign on to help Democrats potentially keep the majority. There's 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 so many um, different arguments and fights going on around this. Plus, the administration has been campaigning on expanding access. And so Medicare benefits are important. But when we've spoken to uh, CMS administrator Brooks LaShore, she's talking about expanding access, expanding coverage and Medicaid expansion to the remaining states would be the most likely to have that. And you already see Representative Clyburn saying, well, you know, Medicare isn't means tested. So you're going to have a lot of wealthier people getting those benefits, whereas people in my state who are struggling to have any coverage at all, they're not going to get anything if we cut out Medicaid. The reason that Medicare is more politically safe is because it's not means tested. It's universal. And so all of society has an investment in protecting it. And that's sort of by design. And so there's a lot of fights right now around that question of should there be an income cutoff in Medicare for the first time. And a lot of this is premised on how much they're able to save in prescription drug spending, right? And that's still not settled. Yeah, absolutely. That is very much not settled. It's just funny just how the sausage gets made. You know, we had the bill text come out of the House. We had these marathon, you know, 50-hour committee markups that several of us watched all of late into the night, early in the morning. And it's... Thank you for your service. Kind of all for nothing because now it's all changing again. Um, You know, sometimes it makes sense for the House to pass its own bill as a means of leverage and as a means of putting down a marker in negotiations with the Senate. But in this case, House moderates don't want to vote on something that then can't pass the Senate because they're worried that could be used against them politically. And so now, even though they marked this all up, it's now changing. In in the old days, when we had regular order, um, energy and commerce and ways and means in the House would mark up different things um, for for Medicare, where they share jurisdiction. And then the Senate would pass its version. There would be three different versions, and they would hash it out in conference that would take weeks and weeks and weeks. I mean, that's why sort of the idea here that they were going to kind of pre-conference this and get this done by what originally was supposed to be the middle of September always seemed incredibly far-fetched and at this point still does. Right. And it's the thing is the healthcare portion alone is tough, but there's so much more in this bill. There's uh, provisions to address the climate crisis. There's paid leave. There's the child tax credit. There's uh, raising taxes on the wealthy, raising taxes on corporations. So 
if it, if they were to just focus in on one thing, it would still be everything that you described take that taking that long, and you would have that many disputes. But there's it's just so much bigger than that. And now that a price tag has been put on it, uh, potentially, you know, that is much lower. We're going to see a lot that gets cut, and they might even throw out all of the home care aid that they were going to put into it, which we haven't brought up, which would help, uh, you know, some of the most vulnerable people in our society. My my understanding is that Speaker Pelosi would like to focus on the ACA subsidies. Is that what you're hearing, Alice? Yes. And basically, they see the Medicaid expansion because it was originally part of Obamacare as securing the Obamacare legacy. And so House leadership is all in on both, whereas, you know, Senate Schumer and Bernie Sanders are, you know, leaning more towards the Medicare dental vision hearing benefits. Of course, when you try to ask Democrats what should get prioritized, they will tell you, oh, we can do it all. We can do it all. But they obviously cannot. Which And I want to move on, but I want to ask one more question because I saw somebody on cable TV last night pointing out, you know, even if they only did $1.5 trillion, if this bill was only $1.5 trillion, that plus what's in the other infrastructure bill that one presumes is going to eventually pass would together be an enormous piece of legislation. And yet Democrats have now painted themselves into this box where it would be a terrible, tiny compromise, right? Yeah. And I think part of that is the fear slash realization that they are very likely to lose control of at least one chamber of Congress, if not both, in next year's midterms. And so they really feel like this is their last chance for potentially many years to get some of these major healthcare programs done. I think that is raising the stakes and pushing them to try to cram as much as they possibly can into this bill. And the idea is even if they can only authorize some of these new health programs for just a couple years, they're hoping to get a toehold so it becomes like Medicare, where political representatives of all stripes are afraid to take it away. Once you give a portion of society a benefit, it's politically risky to try to take it away. Um, and it just becomes normalized. It will become like CHIP, where they go to the brink every time it, it's about to run out. Well, this bill would change that, too. <laughs> right. But this is one of the issues that they're going to face because the beefed-up Obamacare subsidies end at the end of 2022. So if they lose chamber, they're going to have a much harder time extending that. And we know already that a lot of people in the red states have signed up for benefits because of the increased subsidies. So it will be very hard for them not to at least expand that or continue that. Many more all-nighters in all of our futures, I suspect. All right, before we turn to COVID, here's a blast from our podcast past, Surprise Medical Bills. In case you've forgotten, Congress late last year surprised a lot of people, including me, by passing a bipartisan bill to curtail, if not end, surprise medical bills. Those are bills to patients who inadvertently or in emergencies get care outside their insurance networks. Well, the Biden administration this week released the regulations to implement the law and let us say there were winners and losers. Uh, And you could tell just judging from the press releases. Uh, In this case, the winners seem to be insurance companies uh, who wanted stronger limits on how much health providers could charge. Providers, particularly hospitals and doctors, seem not so happy. But what does this mean for patients who were, after all, the ones who were supposed to be served by this legislation? I mean, patients are largely going to be protected. I mean, that was the point. And part of what was holding up the issue was who was going to actually pay the bill instead of the patients. And so there seems to be there was a lot of agreement overall on Capitol Hill. And, you know, this is something that even former President Trump 
got behind. So everybody wants to protect the patient. The question is who ends up paying the bill. And it does look like based on what came out, but this was similar to what was in the law, that insurers are, you know, won out in this battle. When the law passed, it looked like providers were winning because they got this whole arbitration system. And now it looks like what they're doing is they're putting limits on, or at least they're presuming in that in arbitration that the what I guess it's the average insurance payment will be sort of presumed to be the payment unless someone can can show otherwise. And that has providers very unhappy because they were hoping it would be a lot more like baseball where you end up getting a lot more money. And it looks like providers will not get a lot more money, which in the end probably accrues well to patients because it means that insurance premiums won't go up. But it sure is making the providers unhappy. And they're suggesting that this is not in the spirit of the law as it passed. Are they going to be able to change this? Or do we think this is sort of how this is going to go forward? Well, this is a draft that is collecting comments. So the the types of outrage that we all received in our email inboxes coming from providers is is going to be you know posted on uh, and reviewed by uh, different officials and everything. But I do think they'll end up there because the push that we're kind of seeing going on is is to look more toward you know where do you set prices better? How do you make sure that they're more fair? How do you make sure that they're more transparent, that they're more the same so that, you know, different people aren't paying different prices and the same hospital for the same procedure? So yeah, I predict that they'll probably wind up with a final rule that looks like what we're seeing today. And remember, it's the providers who are unhappy, but who's really unhappy are the private equity companies that are backing these providers. So, you know, the hospitals that have are in-network and the doctors that are in-network, this isn't an issue. This, this is an issue for all of the private equity companies that bought up these specialty practices and emergency care and other things, hoping to have prices skyrocket so that they could make a buck. That's Which is what sort of got us here in the first place. Well, we will, we will continue to follow this too. All right, well, let us turn to COVID, which is still not great. Alaska and some other states are still rationing care in overcrowded hospitals. Uh, and while the FDA and CDC uh, gave the okay last week for boosters to some people, it looks like uh, many people who got other shots than the Pfizer shot are running out and getting their own boosters. Uh, So people who aren't technically eligible are going out and it's kind of a free-for-all. Meanwhile, many people still haven't had their first shot and are at risk of getting and spreading COVID. But remember back to the early spring when it seemed that vaccine hesitancy was going to be most serious in minority communities, African-Americans and Hispanics? Well, I guess the outreach efforts must have worked because according to my colleagues at KFF, about the same percentage of whites, blacks and Hispanics now report having had at least one shot. It's all just over 70%. There is still a gap, though, and it's between Democrats and Republicans. Nine of 10 Democrats report having gotten at least one vaccine. The percent of Republicans reporting the same is only 58%. That's a huge gap. Should we have seen this coming? And what can we possibly do about it now? That partisan divide has been pretty evident for a while. Um, There was an interesting Harvard project that was tracking vaccination rates by congressional district, um, you know, which which zooms in more than, you know, state level. And the divide was so striking, my colleagues, and I wrote about it over the summer um, earlier this year. And, you know, all of the districts with the highest vaccination rates were represented by Democrats and all of the districts with the lowest vaccination rates were represented by Republicans with just one or two exceptions. It was really a very striking divide. And I think we're seeing that also play out in 
the public rhetoric of, you know, state leaders of different parties and how much they are pushing not just vaccination mandates or requirements, but even just their rhetoric and encouraging uh, people to get vaccinated. How much would it help if Donald Trump actually threw his weight behind urging his followers to get vaccinated? I mean, this has been sort of talked about on and off over the over these last months. Well, but when he was at a rally the other month, he said, let's get vaccinated, you know, and they booed him. So I don't know. That ship may have sailed already. Absolutely. <laughs> I think that's the perfect example of how it's it's kind of too late. I mean, the, the doubt has already been sown and taken root and saying things now is potentially not going to move the needle. I don't think it's too late. I think that they need to bring in people who are masters at persuasion and to really work to get this done because some communities really are not high, like have really low vaccination rates. Um, And one of the things that has really struck me in looking at the data around vaccinations is that uh, people who live in rural areas who tend to vote Republican are not as vaccinated. And when I think about rural areas, I think about the opioid epidemic. And I think about how those communities were betrayed by the medical system and by their government that um, caused this problem to begin with. So I think that uh, leaders need to own that. And I think that they need to work a lot harder to persuade those communities that their best defense against this virus, which can kill them or kill the people that they love, is to get vaccinated. So one thing that would clearly help the vaccination effort is for there to be less bad information out there to that end. YouTube this week said it would remove videos spreading false information about not just the COVID vaccine, but other vaccines too. Um, Is that another ship that's already sailed? I would say that it helps. I mean, it doesn't undo all the damage that has already been done, but it prevents new unaware people from getting infected from bad information. Um, I mean, if you think of misinformation sort of as a virus, you can try to treat the people who are already infected and de-radicalize them. And that is very, very hard. But the most important thing is preventing new people from getting infected. And this is a big step in that direction. I think it's the same for political leaders. I think Donald Trump giving a speech to a bunch of people who are already hardcore anti-vaxxers is one thing, but maybe him saying that to somebody who's more on the fence and less of a hardcore partisan could make a difference. And one thing that really does seem to be working uh, are employer mandates. Despite threats and lawsuits and loud public complaints, it appears that requiring people to get vaccinated or give up their jobs works to get people vaccinated. The big question is still, can we get as many people as we need to have vaccinated uh, through mandates? Alice, this is your extra credit this week. Why don't you go ahead and talk about it? Yeah. So I I was looking at a piece in The New York Times about um, vaccine mandates by uh, Sean Hubler. Basically, I sort of want to call this the importance of denominators because we have seen so many hysterical headlines recently saying, you know, 600 people quit rather than get vaccinated from, you know, X hospital system or, you know, this many people, you know, resigned or whatever. And it sounds like a lot, but they're not highlighting the denominator. And the denominator is tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands. And when you look at the percentages, these mandates are really pushing way more people to get vaccinated. And this article shows that it's not just in, you know, New York and California, which were sort of ahead of the curve on this. It's also in more conservative areas 
uh, Tyson's Foods, the massive conglomerate, said that their mandate pushed the company from below 50% vaccination rates to over 90%. I mean, that's just huge. That's so many people. So the evidence is really that it's working. And I think now that the government has implemented mandates for its workers, companies are feeling more empowered to do the same. It has having good ramifications and bad ramifications. So you've heard me talk before about my friend's sister who's a New York City public teacher. Well, she got vaccinated on Monday because at that point that was the date that she was going to lose her job. But we know that there's still a, a lawsuit on, on that. So it's not for certain yet whether New York City teachers have to get vaccinated. But on the flip side, there have still been enough healthcare workers in New York who have not been vaccinated that now you have hospitals and other places that are curtailing care. So they're closing um, urgent care centers in areas so that they can divert more people to the main hospitals. They're stopping to offer C-sections and other things. So this is having an impact. And hopefully they're talking about getting more students, getting retirees to come in. But, you know, is that a long-term solution where we know that there's such a staffing shortage in general. Yeah, and it's, this has been sort of the trade-off. If, you know, will people actually not even get fired because they're not getting vaccinated, but will people quit rather than get vaccinated or retire early? And if you're in a job shortage situation, which a lot of, it's you know, the healthcare workforce obviously is, but we're also looking, you know, there's huge shortages of bus drivers and teachers and, you know, all kinds of frontline workers. There's this concern that, that people might actually choose sort of not to work rather than get vaccinated. Right. But it's not an easy choice because, you know, yes, even even if it's a small percentage of people quitting, you know, if you're operating on those tight margins, it could really it could really hurt if people quit over the vaccine mandate. However, it could hurt that business and cause extreme shortages if people get COVID, <laughs> if unvaccinated people get COVID. And so they're, they're sort of making this calculus that it's better to lose uh, a few people than risk massive outbreaks that could really bring the entire organization to a halt. In the school context, we're already seeing places with low vaccination rates have to shut down and go virtual. Um, so it's not an idle fear. Yes, and, and lots of lots of quarantines and lack of testing, which we have talked about. Um, all right, well, there is more news on the abortion beat this week. As we discussed last Thursday, on Friday, the House passed legislation for the first time ever that would codify abortion rights in federal law, but it's not going anywhere in the Senate where it would need 60 votes, which it obviously doesn't have. This week, three Democratic Congresswomen of color, Washington's Pramila Jayapal, Missouri's Cori Bush, and California's Barbara Lee, testified a hearing about their own abortions. I have to say, I've been covering abortion issues in Washington since 1987. These were two really watershed moments. Um, ironically, they come at a time when abortion rights are under the biggest threat since Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973. I mean, how big a deal are these things? Are they going to move the needle? They, they've not been... There's so much other news going on. I fear that they're you know, not getting as much attention as perhaps they deserve. And I think it's what you said about the Senate dynamics that are really making people sort of set this aside. I mean, it, it is it is big. Um, some of those uh, people who testified had shared those stories previously. Some had never shared those stories before. And, you know, I think that it marks a cultural shift, whereas in the past, abortion was more talked about as a tragedy that must be prevented, um, even by its supporters. And now that sort of rhetoric is is not 
not as favored and it's something where people are saying, you know, this is a right, I'm going to be unapologetic about it. Um, And I think, you know, that's an effort to change the culture around it. And that leads to people's voting behavior and changing the laws. However, because of the likelihood or impossibility of passing this in the Senate right now, and because things are so up in the air in the courts, it's not going to change things immediately. I'm one of those people who's guilty of saying like every two years or four years, this is the year that abortion is going to become a really big voting issue. And it it never has, at least as long as I've been doing it. Is this the year that abortion is going to become a really big voting issue? I don't know. I think it has been. I mean, it certainly has been on the other side. It has been for the right to life side of the argument. No, but for the the Democrats as well, I think it was a non, uh, you know, a non-trivial element in the Democrats taking back the House in 2018. That was around a lot of the Supreme Court and Donald Trump's appointees to the Supreme Court and fears about Roe versus Wade. And then, of course, Ruth Bader Ginsburg dying right before the 2020 election also, you know, made people really anxious about abortion rights, waves of states passing these bans. And so I I think it has been a growing issue on the left as well. Um, You know, I don't think it's the top thing, but is there ever really one big top thing other than the pandemic, obviously? I think that's a fair point. Kim? I think one of the things that complicates it all is that abortion rights are so different from state to state. So you have a lot of people that live in states where there's just one abortion clinic. And so they already know that it's a threat. You know, they've known for a long time. And then you have other states that have really enshrined abortion rights into their state laws and uh, access is very straightforward and available and and all those other things. So that sort of complicates, I think, the picture and the way that people think about it and how it affects them. Because if you're not really following the news as much or the political dialogue and things like that, you might not know how bad it is in some places or you might not know that it's much more available in other places. You know what I mean? Really, until you you are in that situation and then, you know, it happens to you and you you need to access abortion. Which brings us to Texas, um, where abortion is essentially unavailable at this point, except for people who are sort of lucky enough to discover extraordinarily early uh, in their pregnancies that they are pregnant. Um, as we are taping this, a federal court in Austin is hearing arguments about the state's abortion ban in a case brought by the Biden Justice Department, But something I had not appreciated was buried within one of the stories on this. Even if a federal court blocks the law, providers are unlikely to restart offering abortion services in Texas because the law says if an injunction is ultimately reversed, those providers could be sued later for the procedures they performed even while the law was blocked by the courts. Is this kind of checkmate for abortion in Texas, at least until the Supreme Court rules on this more conclusively? Some of the providers in Texas are halting all abortions, even those that would be legal under the current law out of, you know, because of just the chilling effect and fear of getting sued. And so I think what you're describing is just a further extension of that. And I think that it is extraordinarily effective. And I think it's why other states want to pursue this strategy, because, you know, just the threat of it can really halt or severely reduce the number of abortions being performed, no matter the exact legal details at hand. I mean, I don't know about checkmate. I think this could go back to the Supreme Court, you know, quicker than we may believe now that the Justice Department has gotten involved, but uh, we'll have to see. Yeah, another story that will continue. All right, well, that is the news, at least for now. Now we will play my interview with Anna Flagg, then we will come back and do our extra credits. 
I am pleased to welcome to the podcast Anna Flagg. She's senior data reporter for the Marshall Project and the author of a fascinating piece in collaboration with the New York Times called The Black Mortality Gap and a document written in 1910. And we'll get to what that document is in a moment, but regular podcast listeners will know that I am endlessly interested in medical education and the future of the nation's healthcare workforce. Anna Flagg, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So you're primarily a data reporter, but this isn't primarily a data story. How did you end up with this story? (laughs) Yeah, so I think it started with the data because there's just a huge gap in mortality rates that Black Americans experience in the U.S. And this is a gap that occurs at almost every age. So basically every year, 60,000 more Black deaths happen than would be expected if mortality rates for Black Americans and white Americans were the same. Just to put that in perspective, for every five Black funerals, one of those funerals could have been prevented or, or should have been prevented. So that, you know, is quite an astounding piece of data. And I think we've heard a lot of kind of information about the driving causes for these disparities, but one of them that I think has received a little bit less coverage is the way that the healthcare system itself contributes to these mortality disparities. So that's kind of how we got around to it. Yeah, the heart of this story is something called the Flexner Report. Tell us what that is. Yeah, so the Flexner Report is a report that was written over 100 years ago. So, you know, just to kind of paint a picture of what it was like back then, in, in 1910, the U.S. healthcare system was sort of a free-for-all. It was basically unregulated by the government and really lacking the protections for patients against fraud and, and a whole range of dangerous medical practices. And so that's where the Flexner Report came in. The Flexner Report was a large survey of the state of medical education across all the country's medical schools, kind of laying out those problems. And it called for a range of new scientific standards and professional requirements for medical schools and practices to address those problems. The outcome of the Flexner Report was a lot of it was improvement, you know, bringing huge improvements to American medicine, including new scientific standards for practices and just generally kind of more protections for patients. Um, But at the same time, it was also devastating for the black medical field and for black patients And that's something that we're still living with today. Those of us who have toiled for a while in the the history of medical education think of the Flexner Report as a turning point, mostly for the good in American medicine, professionalizing what had been, as you pointed out, kind of a free-for-all medical system. But that's certainly not the impact that it had on uh, medical training for Black Americans, right? Yeah, that's right. So even before the Flexner Report, Black Americans had an inferior experience of the healthcare system. So Black patients received segregated care, and Black medical students were barred from medical training programs. Black doctors lacked really kind of important resources for their practices. Um, And then came Flexner, and, and here was sort of just another crushing blow to Black health, because it was just kind of handing down these exacting new medical standards and requirements but without any of the planning or resources or funding to put those standards into effect. What was kind of predictable happened, which is out of the seven black medical schools at the time, only two survived after Flexner. 
Um, they're, they're still here today, Howard and Meharry. And black hospitals and practitioners also suffered. Yeah, so the effect really was, after the Flexner report, to narrow the racial diversity in the physician workforce as well as the class diversity. But the Flexner report also called for a much larger emphasis on public health and population health, which could have closed some of those economic and racial gaps. That didn't happen, though, did it? Yeah, that's that's right. So the Flexner report emphasized public health, but that was one of the recommendations that was not really taken up by the medical establishment at the time. And if you look at the history at this time, this was a time of medical reform and white doctors especially had been advocating to make these sorts of improvements to the medical field for a long time. And so with the Flexner report, they really um, kind of took up that banner and pushed for the recommendations that the Flexner Report was making. But in particular, the recommendation about public health was not something that they pushed for, and because there was a lot of tangled interests going on at the time. And these doctors, at the same time they were calling for improvements to make the medical field more scientific, were also advocating in their own financial and social self-interest. Something that they wanted to do was make the field more exclusive. <laughs> that was the effect that really happened, and not so much with the public health. It's, it's one of the, the interesting things that showed that when the recommendations of the Flexner Report aligned with the self-interest of physicians, those are the changes that were made, and the public health uh, changes were not really made. And that sort of helps explain why even today, African-Americans are, are disproportionately unrepresented uh, in the medical profession compared to their numbers in the population, right? Yeah, that's right. So black Americans make up 13% of the population, but 5% of the physician workforce. And that has changed very little. I mean, 50 years ago, it was not that different. And this also affects a lot of other groups that are underrepresented, like people from lower socioeconomic classes or people from rural areas. Yeah, I mean, the field of medicine is very exclusive. And even though the Flexner Report was 100 years ago and lots of things have changed, that really has not, right? Right, right. Because the standards that were kind of institutionalized with Flexner were really built around a really specific type of elite physician. They were giving an advantage to wealthy, upper-class, white men, especially ones from a city and especially ones from the kind of northern part of the country. So if you think about that today, that's still the person who's the most likely to have the wealth to take on medical school debt, to pay tuition fees, to get the kind of pre-medical mentorship and coaching and test preparation, all of the things that are required to become a doctor. Anna Flagg, there is still much to ponder here. Thank you so much for your work and for joining us to talk about it. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, we're back, and it's time for our extra credit segment where we each recommend a story we read this week we think you should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the list on the podcast page at khn.org. Alice, you've done yours already. Kim, why don't you go next? Yeah, mine comes from our newsroom at Insider, and it's by Shelby, Shelby Livingston, and the title is Walmart's Health Clinics Are Struggling with Basic Functions Like Billing, Imperiling the Company's Push to Upend Care. The story um, is wonderful. It's uh, She spoke to eight former and 
current Walmart health employees to get the inside story about the rollout. Um, what happened is that Walmart created these primary care clinics to try to disrupt health care in Georgia starting about two years ago, and they'll be moving into Florida next. Uh, they learned going into the healthcare business was a lot harder than they apparently anticipated. Part of the problem was like in the in the headline that mentions a lot of the billing issues and working with health insurance companies and trying to figure out all the ways to pay for services. And then they she learned that they also had trouble uh, credentialing providers. So I really enjoyed it because it's always interesting to see how these uh, these big companies that have been successful in other areas are still having trouble disrupting healthcare. Healthcare is harder than you think. Tammy. Well, we were talking about vaccine status and employer mandates. So my story is a really interesting take. It's from the Wall Street Journal by Patrick Thomas. And the headline is vaccination status is the new must have on your resume. So because so many employers now, in the, you know, you have the federal mandate are requiring this. Some people and some career advisors are suggesting that you just put on your resume or on your LinkedIn profile that you are vaccinated in order to avoid those awkward conversations because the HR folks and the executives at companies don't want to find someone they really love and then have that awkward conversation at the end saying, oh, by the way, are you vaccinated? Oh, you aren't and you won't get vaccinated? I'm sorry, we can't hire you. And so that's a big waste of time. So that is something now that I guess we're going to see more often on resumes and LinkedIn, just sort of like on Match.com. The pandemic is changing everything. Uh, my story is from Science Magazine. It's by Meredith Wadman, and it's called Top Secret U.S. National Academy of Medicine Keeps Expulsions Quiet. And it's about how a doctor who was shown to be a serial plagiarist and liar and was written about in the New York Times in 2018 could be kicked out of the prestigious National Academy of Medicine, except it was supposed to be a secret. The NAM's policy is if a journalist asks if someone has been expelled, they will confirm it, but they don't put out a public statement when it happens like they do when people are voted into the Academy. If this story feels a little familiar, um, KHN did a story earlier this year on potential conflicts of interest on panels of the National Academy of Medicine. The NAM is one of the nation's most trusted sources of medical expertise, but it looks like some of its personnel policies need a little bit of updating. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review that helps other people find us too. Special thanks as always to our ace producer, Francis Yang, who still manages to make us all sound good. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealthalloneword at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. Kim? At Leonard KL. Alice? At Alice Olstein. Tammy? At Luby, L-U-H-B-Y. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.